Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is the anonymous Twitter account, Car Dealership Guy, also known as CDG. I was excited for this episode because it combines two of my biggest interests, markets and cars, and CDG did not disappoint. We cover a lot of ground, starting with why car dealerships are such great businesses. We then talk about the state of the car market in 2023, the auto workers strike, discounting and lending, and a lot more. Please enjoy my conversation with Car Dealership Guy. Car Dealership Guy. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to do this. Eric, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So let's just start with, where did all this on Twitter, the guy thing come from? There's the car dealership guy. There's the strip mall guy. It's a whole genre of Twitter. For those of you who don't follow it, I think it's awesome. It's basically like this anon culture of people who are deep experts in maybe an esoteric part of the market, but speak on behalf of the industry. So where did this all start from? So what really happened here is... The last couple of years has been crazy in the markets. We've witnessed all this unprecedented highs and lows and whatnot, real estate, cars, and all these other industries. And so a trend started where you had people that were actually experts in their niches and started sharing just insights, anecdotes, stuff that they're seeing in their day-to-day. And you could tell that this instantly found product market fit because these anonymous accounts started growing. I was absolutely not the first. There was one called Some Hotel Guy who started this years ago, and he built a modest following. And then after that, a strip mall guy came, and strip mall guy really started scaling this genre of Twitter accounts. But it's really a media brand, and we'll talk about that shortly. But strip mall guy really started just growing this and bringing a lot of attention to it. And for me, I remember it's very vividly, laying in bed, my wife, it's 10 p.m. or something. And I'm like, you know what? I think I can share some interesting stuff. I've been in this industry for a pretty long time been around the block as well. And so I think I have some good stories I could possibly share here. So I created this anonymous account just randomly for fun, started sharing insight within a couple of weeks. First, I was blown away by how many people were following my account, but I could tell that it instantly just struck a chord. People were thirsty for transparency into the car business, given all the craziness, the prices rising. People just wanted to know from an insider what is happening. And for me, I felt comfortable being open and transparent because I wasn't putting my stakeholders at risk, being employees, investors, whoever, by saying certain things that would be maybe controversial. I also wasn't taking any risk for potential retaliation from the industry. I didn't know yet what I was going to say, how provocative it may be. So it was a very safe, easy way for me to share my thoughts to the world without taking lots of risk. 
That's awesome. And so give me a little bit of the background. What is your background in the auto industry? I know that we're going to respect your anonymity, but how did you learn to become such an expert? So the funny thing about my anonymity is that well over a thousand people today know who I am, at least people that I know. So the anonymity was a great way to launch and start, and it's absolutely the ethos of the brand. I think what was really important about that is that I never sold you a car. People would beg me, hey, can you please help me find a car? Can you sell me a car? And I always said no, because that was not what I was on Twitter for. I didn't feel like dealing with that. I also did not want to take the risk of potentially selling someone a car on Twitter and having something happen. It's a machine at the end of the day. And then have that travel back to the Twitterverse, ruin my reputation. I just didn't want to even go down that path. So I sold very, very select people cars, actually, believe it or not. Just people that had large followings. I held their hand throughout the entire process. My team made sure that it was well perfect, that there would never be any issue. But again, it's not what I came onto Twitter to do. So the anonymity really has served me very well because it positions me in this unbiased segment where I'm not here slinging my franchise or specific brand that I'm associated with or something. And by the way, you can't even find my website to buy a car. So I'm genuinely here. My value is in bringing authenticity and transparency to what is happening in the business. If I lose that, I'm worthless. So before the brand of CDG, did you have your own dealership? Were you just trading cars? Were you working on a primary dealership? What is the story? Yeah, I've been in the dealership business for over a decade on the used side. Over the years, I also had launched a couple other ventures from within that, got involved with capital markets. I've done a lot really on just the used car retailing side in various capacities. As I've continued to reflect on why people give a shit about what I have to say, it's always been a combination of the fact that it's very practical. I tell it how I see it. And having been on the ground floor of a dealership, wiping down a window of a car to the boardroom with billion-dollar hedge funds and anywhere in between, I've been able to take these sophisticated insights and distill them down to just simple words so that every single person can understand whether you're a consumer, you're a dealer, you're an investor, you're an analyst at some hedge fund, whatever. So I think that's what's unique about my insight, just being able to deliver what I'm seeing in very simple, practical terms. So I'd like to start at a high level and then work our way down into more of the really nuanced insights and the data and how your team pulls it together. But just to start, so there's the used car industry, which I think to your point, coming out of COVID stimulus, the numbers started to be eye-popping to people. Before we get to used cars, let's talk about the new car dealerships. I'd once heard something, I don't know if this is true, but I wanted to ask about, it seems like new dealerships, I think they have regulated monopoly. Like you can't put a Mercedes next to a Mercedes. The Mercedes has to sell the dealer. It seems like owning a new car dealership is a really good business and all the celebrities and athletes do it. So why is that such a good business market to own when I thought the margin on cars wasn't very high? I love this question. I'm laughing because it is a good business. And I would say in the last decade, there's been tons of tailwinds on the use side. In the next decade, and frankly now, all the tailwinds are on the new side. So here's the deal with the new car business. You're really operating four to five businesses under one roof, and it's a very tax-efficient type of business. So you have new car sales, you have used car sales, you have a parts department, you have a service department, you may have a body shop. On the tax side, first of all, you're acquiring real estate, which you can cost segregate that, get bonus depreciation and all that good stuff. You can do reinsurance, which really just means that you launch a captive insurance company where you're selling the vehicle service contracts to your customers. You then earn the profit or underwriting loss associated with that. That could be very lucrative as well. And of course, on top of all that, everyone needs a car. 
you have a job, you want to go to work, you need a car. The average person buys a car once every six years. So it's just such a staple in the American life. And it's a very recession-proof business. People are not buying cars, they may be servicing the cars. Times are great, then they may be buying more cars and servicing fewer cars. So it's just a really good, well-rounded business that is pretty recession-proof, especially if you're on the new car side. Was that a myth or do you know if that's true that if you open up a dealership, you can't open up another one? It's the reason why you don't see two Mercedes dealerships or any brand competing with each other. There's some rule. If you have this territory, then someone has to be further away from you. Just like any franchise in any industry, different manufacturers have different stipulations, but absolutely. You're not going to have two Mercedes dealers right next to each other competing with one another. That's correct. And then is it true that once you have one of these, even if you're like running your business horribly, the manufacturer has to keep sending you cars? No, that's not true. It depends what you mean by horribly, but manufacturers aren't dumb. If you do something not compliant or you're below a certain threshold. There's plenty of different reasons why you might have to sell your franchise to another operator. But like I said, for the most part, if you run a good healthy business, you stay on top of your stuff and you're compliant, you shouldn't have any issues. And yeah, you basically have exclusivity in your market, which is huge when you think about it. Talk about pricing power when it comes to the hourly rate of your service technicians. At the end of the day, if I'm the only Mercedes-Benz dealer in town and you need to get your car service and you want to come to the dealer, you're going to pay. That's just the reality of it, unless you want to go to a third-party shop. So again, a lot of advantages with just the new car dealership franchise model. And staying on that point, it might just be the major metropolitan areas, but it feels like when I travel to any city, someone has consolidated all the brands into a big buying power. I'm from Boston. Herb Chambers and Ernie Bach are like these oligopolies. He's done very, very well. And every brand is under one roof. It's not like the manufacturers are like, oh, there's competition. How does that become an oligopoly where there's very few competitors? You see, the thing about this business is operating leverage, economies of scale. It's so, so real. And once you have one, two, three, four stores, you're already building that back office. You're already building the executive team. You get so many more advantages from just continuing to scale. You can acquire more inventory. You have more selection for your consumers. You have more brands to offer. And plus, at the end of the day, you're making money. The last couple of years, dealers made a ton of money. They made four years worth of earnings in one year. So what do you do with that money? Well, you go and buy more dealerships and you redeploy it in the business and you continue scaling and expanding. So consolidation in general is just at record numbers in the industry, continues to set new heights. You have some major publicly traded players like Lithia that have just been on a consolidation spree. But it's just a business where this isn't your mom or pop's dealership from 1989 anymore. We're in a whole different new era now. You have the internet and things have gotten more complicated and more sophisticated. Dealers have chief information officers. Go back 10 years ago, that would have been crazy to think about a freaking CIO at a dealership. So given all this sophistication and complexity, it just makes sense nowadays to scale and consolidate if you can do it. And when you just mentioned those numbers of generating four years of profit in one year, and you think about the new car sale, the used car sale, the parts business, the service, the four tenants that these dealerships have, do you have any sense of where that profit margin was coming from? It depends on the dealer. If you go really low level, like a Mitsubishi store, that's almost just like a used car store. So it really depends on the brand, the market. It depends on a lot of things, but specifically across the new and used car sale, it was just absolute all-time records of profitability and volume. So take us back to before COVID. There's some interesting things that happened in COVID. People are talking about supply chain. But leading up to COVID, 
where were the car markets, maybe the new and specifically the used, and then what happened during COVID that sent the used car market, and particularly to these astronomic heights? Well, things were typically called the SAR, the seasonally adjusted annual rate, which is just how many new cars are sold in a year. I want to say it typically hovers around 17 or 18 million. For over a decade, it's been like that. And COVID hits, suddenly we're not producing new cars. I think we were producing in 2020 or 2021 around 12 million cars, 12 and a half. You're way below benchmark and what you need to have a healthy market. And all that put a ton of pressure on the use side. The average used car was up 50% from 20 to mid-2021, which was just insane. You got to a point where the pre-pandemic average used vehicle had 65,000 miles on it. Today, it's well over 70,000 because we had such a shortage of used cars that people were buying older. They were fixing the cars for longer. Today, the average age of a used car on the road is over 13 years, maybe close to 14 years. So it just puts so much pressure on the used side, pretty much dwindling supply and jacking up prices to unprecedented levels that are extremely unhealthy for a healthy functioning market. So that's had a ton of ramifications on where we're at today. Remember, we underproduced cars for the last couple of years. You have roughly 30% fewer used cars in dealer inventory over the last 18 months. So just imagine going down from 3 million used cars to 2 million used cars in dealer inventories. Boom, right there, that's going to buoy the market in prices. And that's why you're still seeing that used cars are very close to all-time highs. Because any way you slice and dice it, we're not going to ever get back to where we were in 2019, or at least it's going to take many years. Because the reality is that we just underproduced too many vehicles over the last couple of years. And that has just put this pressure on the used side that even if demand dries up a little bit, it's still really tough to get to a point of equilibrium. I was going to dive in a little bit. On the demand side, none of this, or at least it wasn't enough to impact a lot of people working from home or driving less. There wasn't less miles driven or less car usage. I would actually argue it's the opposite. All we've seen since the pandemic is de-urbanization, or we've seen a lot of it. So you're actually seeing families. And by the way, I'm exhibit A. I was living in the city. My family, we were in the city. We moved. We went to the burbs. Best decision we ever made, but we're like exhibit A. A lot of de-urbanization and people need more cars, actually. And yeah, obviously, some work from home outweighs that. But I think the overwhelming majority, the car market has been humming. Demand is really barring all the other macro stuff that's happening right now. That's definitely having an adverse impact on demand. All the things that we thought that we would see ride share taking away, Gen Z not wanting to own cars, autonomous vehicles, it just never manifested. Not to say that the technology is not there or that people don't love to use Uber. It's just it never actually came at the expense of new car sales or used car sales. What is the competitive landscape look like between the used car market and the new car market. The reference I had was, you have Herb Chambers, who has this huge position in the Northeast and the Boston area. Every brand, you can buy a new car from them, you can buy a used car from them. And you'll drive by and they'll see used car lots, but it feels like, at least to me, most of the places I see are large enterprises. On the used car space, pure used car, there's no new car business. Is it more fragmented? Are there more mom and pop or smaller businesses that are running those type of businesses? It is. And one of the main reasons for that is because on the used car side, you have a ton of key man risk. It's a very entrepreneurial business. The dealer principal, the owner, is typically the secret sauce to that business. They're the reason that business works. And it's because it's a business with razor thin margins where 
your profit is every penny you save and every part of the operation. Imagine acquiring someone that does that. As soon as they're not there, you lose that touch. And the used car business, which has very few moats to it, pretty much none, really, unless you hit major scale, you're in a very tough position. Compare that to the new side, where if you're a franchise, you may be the only one in your market. You have guaranteed lease returns. You're leasing cars. You get those back. So you have this guaranteed proprietary supply of used cars. You have the manufacturer who's advertising for you. You have all these programs. You're guaranteed to have all these lenders that are backing you up that you can sell cars. So the franchise business just has a lot of benefits to it. And to be clear, I've never been a franchise dealer. I've always had it tough. (laughs) But there's no doubt about it that the used car side don't have many barriers to entry. And it's not very often that you see a used car dealer be acquired. It's happened in the last couple of years in New York and Texas and Maryland. I'm giving you some examples from Sonic Automotive, publicly traded companies specifically, but it's just not as frequent as you'll see franchise consolidation. So I'm curious to learn about life cycle of a used car. If you're running a dealership and you personally has a secret touch, you've got to, like any asset class, and what I find fascinating, you got to buy stuff right, you got to sell it right. There's a holding period. There could be a financing cost for holding something. So walk me through the economics of it. When you buy a used car, it's razor thin margins, but I'm assuming you have to buy that car relative to something. I don't know if that's like an auction price or it's final resting place. And then how does a mom and pop or just an individual entrepreneur get financing to hold that many cars and how long do they have to hold them for? So look, it's called floor plan financing. It's pretty much lenders that specialize in financing your cars, your inventory so that you can sell them. As a used car dealer, you don't get any, call it floor plan credits, which manufacturers give their franchise dealers, which pretty much just subsidizes your inventory carrying costs. So you don't get that as a used car dealer. So you're paying well above 10% in this market to carry your inventory. So you can imagine if you annualize that plus add depreciation, you're losing money on that used car. So you have to move that car within like 30 to 60 days. Because if not, between floor plan costs, curtailments, fees, you're just going to lose money. So it's another reason why in a market like we have today, it's just extremely important as a used car dealer to move your inventory quickly. And that means maybe pricing more aggressively, running a tighter ship with more efficient processes. But all that said, you have to focus on your turn time above everything in today's market. And then on the demand side for used cars, has that side of the business changed? I know you have TV advertisements and driving by and seeing the cars on the lot. But has the demand for used cars changed how the independent dealerships try to get that side of the business up? So the biggest challenge has been consumer lending is the fuel that just drives the used car business. If you don't have the banks, if you don't have lenders, you're not selling any cars, period. So when your average used car is over 28 grand, it's a problem. When you couple that with the average interest rate on a used car in the country, which is 13.5% right now, which is just wild when you think about it. And not to mention the average interest rate on a new car is at a 20-year high at 9.5%. So you have really, really big challenges in the market right now. And it's very much stemming from lending. Before the interest rates shot up so quickly, you were still selling cars at the same similar prices. But since interest rates have gone up, it's just become a lot tougher. And the craziest part of it all is that the consumer just can't absorb any more price increases. You've only seen prices come down, even though used car supplies at all-time lows. And what that is going to result in even more over time is just you're going to continue seeing this margin compression for dealers because consumer can't pay more, but the cost is higher. Dealers have to pay more. 
lending is a lot stricter, which means you're profiting less. And so you're going to see more margin compression, I predict, especially on the use side. I was going to go back to something you said that I want to try to tie together, which is that you had mentioned it was more recession-proof, that Americans love buying cars. They're, they're pretty consistent with their buying patterns. But I was curious if with interest rates and everyone just generally talking about the health of the consumer, if you're expecting a large auto loan default cycle where a lot of people have cars, these payments are really high, these interest rates are really high, and it just becomes a thing. I know in prior cycles, people were worried about this and it didn't necessarily come home to roost as much. But how do you think about high interest rates, big fixed costs, and potential auto loan defaults? We're definitely seeing an uptick. I can tell you that when you look at delinquencies, auto loans, they keep rising. Defaults are rising, but not at the same pace just yet. But there are just many dark clouds on the horizon right now between auto loan delinquencies and defaults. Deep subprime lending at this point is pretty much dead. Banks are just not doing it. And deep subprime is not getting approved on cars. So that's pretty much gone out the window, which you could argue is actually a healthy thing. Nonetheless, it's a reality, which is also impacting the industry, buyers and dealers alike. With rates being so high, credit unions who have a structural advantage in their cost structure, they're making up now roughly 30% of all auto loans, which is crazy. A couple of years ago, they were doing maybe 15%, now 30%. So the market is trying to find ways to make up for these issues, specifically with respect to lending. But it's going to continue being very challenging. And on top of all of that stuff, you have lots of people that overpaid for these cars the last two years and are now flipped in them. They owe more than the car is worth. So what's going to happen with all those people? Well, they're going to either repossess their car, maybe commit some, I don't know, auto insurance fraud or something to get rid of it. You're going to start seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happen because these people, they won't be able to trade their car in. At a certain point, they're going to need to trade it in. Maybe they have growing family, they need a bigger car. Maybe the car just sucks and it's breaking down and they can't fix it. Millions of reasons. But you're getting to this weird point in the market right now where everything from the last couple of years is culminating and we're starting to see the impact slowly. What are you seeing on the high-end side of the market? On the luxury brands or the Teslas, the EV stuff where the prices are? At this point, I remember when a six-figure car was a big deal and now it feels like every large SUV crosses six figures after you put a steering wheel in it. So first of all, you're right. Everything, six-figure car is not even crazy anymore, which is insane to think about. I think the first thing is you're still seeing great demand on full-size domestic SUVs, Escalades, Suburbans, all these things you're still seeing really strong demand. I think what's important to note is that people that are still buying cars are people that have money. It's the top 10% of the country, at least on these types of cars. And these people still have excess pandemic savings. I actually tweeted about this the other day, but that's a very important data point because they still have money. They're still able to go buy these cars and they don't need financing necessarily. So they can buy whatever they want, but you're still seeing pretty good demand. You're also seeing pretty good demand on exotics still. I think $250,000 cars plus. I actually just had one of the largest exotic used car dealers in the country on my podcast, Shameless Plug, CDG podcast. Check it out. It really is still fine because these people have cash. Where you're seeing the market slow a lot more is on just your everyday luxury cars that are dime a dozen, maybe 60,000 plus. The market is absolutely slowed there. And those cars are coming down in price faster than any other type of vehicle in the market. You had a great tweet that showed the value plays. I think about these like securities of the MSRP and the amount of discounts people are giving by cars. I want to understand how that mechanism works. Forget what it was at the top. It might have been like the muscle cars I noticed. 
were at bigger discounts, but whatever the car is, what happens to the new car dealer? Does the manufacturer cover that? Are they taking losses? How does the economics work between the manufacturer and the franchisee to sell a new car that's not moving? So the manufacturer is the one that controls those incentives. At the moment of recording this podcast, auto incentives are at a 24-month high, which pretty much just means that you go to buy a car, more likely than not, it depends on the brand, of course, but you're going to be offered some incentive that's subsidized by the manufacturer. You go buy a Toyota Sienna, I love to use this example, hot selling minivan that is tough to get still, you're not getting any incentives. You're paying full price and maybe even over price for that. But then you go buy Chrysler Pacifica or something, you're going to get an incentive. So the manufacturer comes in and incentives can play out in many different ways. You could have an interest rate offer, pay 0% interest, which I actually post about this as well. There's still some 0% offers out there that, of course, it's all subsidized by the manufacturer. To dive in on that, is the dealer running an optimization model and saying, I've got 50 Pacificas and I've got to move them and I'm willing to take the loss? Or is the manufacturer calling the franchisee and be like, you guys haven't sold a Pacifica in three weeks. I want to push this out. Who is doing that inventory rebalancing and management? There's a function of both. As a dealer, you have control over your pricing. You're the franchisee. As a manufacturer, you can put out incentives that impact regions or pockets of your brand and dealership. So it's a combination. I'm trying to understand how a new dealer loses money on new inventory. We start off the conversation very bullish. As we were talking, I want to make it on my list. I want to own a car dealership. That seems like a great business. But then as you start to paint double-digit interest rates on cars, not necessarily a buyer's market, people pushing stuff out, I was curious when the pain gets felt for a new dealer. Because think about it, they have this balance sheet. They're financing it on a floor plan financing. So they're paying a rate to keep those cars. If the demand's not there, I guess I'm walking through scenarios where like a new dealer got in trouble and I don't know if they can or if the manufacturer is just always there to be, I'll take some of those cars back or I can move them to Kansas from Boston. How does a new dealer get in trouble? I can't tell you for you know every single brand specifically. What I can tell you is dealers lose money on specific cars all the time. You may be working towards a benchmark where if you sell X amount of cars in a certain amount of time frame, the manufacturer will give you a kickback. So then you'll maybe make up for some of that loss. Or you may sell that car at a loss, but sell some ancillary products with that car. Or you may sell that car at a loss and get a trade-in that you can resell and make a very good profit on. And by the way, you also just earn a customer for your service department. So I think the best dealers think about things long-term and holistically. Not every single deal is going to be a home run. Lots of deals are slim deals. Lots of deals or many deals are also losers. But you have to look at it on a full funnel. What does the deal look like? What term does it make sense if it doesn't make sense short-term? And that's how you become a profitable dealership. Look, there's plenty of dealers out there that are bad operators and lose money. And they don't last in that seat very long. Whether it's the dealer or the GM, that's where you get turnover. There's many dealers out there really that don't run a tight ship and have these issues. This is a fun question someone wanted to ask you, was just the whole how the sale works. Does it have to be like this? Do we have to walk into dealerships and negotiate and do the haggle? I know like some people have come out with like, this is the price and we mean it. But even that, it always feels like people need to haggle over price. Is it always like that everywhere? It's actually not. <laughs> so it's funny you ask. The industry has come a long way. I would say, look, different dealerships are just better than others. You have some dealerships that are very tech forward, just transparent, simple. They don't necessarily want to gouge on one deal. They just want to make a steady profit on plenty of deals. 
you really have a lot of these good actors in the industry and you have a minority that are bad actors that get all the attention and noise. If you look at it a big picture, the industry and consumers are rewarding dealers that are transparent and that offer a good, clean, fast experience. So it's very normal for dealers to be optimizing for that. You're not some righteous, altruistic saint if you're optimizing nowadays for transparency and one price or this. You're actually doing what's best for the customer, which also, by the way, happens to be what's best for you and your business. So I think it's very consensus nowadays that you don't have to be one price, but you want to have a pretty easy process that doesn't fatigue the customer, that's quick, speed is incredibly important, share all that information upfront before they get to the dealership and hopefully make a sale and get a referral business because referral business is your most profitable business. So you deliver a good experience. That's what you're banking on. It might've been a fact of where interest rates were low, but to me, and I know you always dive into numbers, which will be helpful, is there was always this notion of you shouldn't lease a car unless you have to, or you owned a business. There's just always not a good idea economically. And I don't know, because I haven't done the math in a while. I think it's always a finance test of, should you buy or lease a vehicle? But where rates are today, does that matter? Or where are examples where leasing is better than buying? Look, pre-COVID leasing was about one in every three cars. Super popular, the hottest thing since life spread. Nowadays, it's somewhere in like the low to mid-teens. It's about half. Why is that? Well, what happened was rates rose and inventory supply dwindled. Manufacturers, they had more of an incentive to sell you the car than lease you the car. So if I don't have enough supply, I'd rather make it less attractive to lease so that you buy it. I don't know the exact economics, but I can tell you they're slightly better when you buy a car than when you lease a car for the manufacturer, not for the dealer necessarily. And if you compare leasing versus buying, and you compare that to 2019, today, leasing is a bit more expensive on a relative basis than it is to buy a car. It rose faster than car buying did or car prices did at least. So it's just become less attractive. There's fewer leases out there in the market. And the other thing that's really interesting, just another thing related to leasing to consider is that lease return rates have plummeted over the last couple of years. Because prices went so crazy and they rose so much, people were like, wait, I'm not returning my car. I can't go buy a new one. It's not smart. I'm keeping it. So at a certain point, we saw lease return rates plummeted roughly like 80 plus percent in the last couple of years, which is mind boggling when you think about it. But it also makes sense because people wanted to hold on to those cars. So yeah, leasing is an interesting phenomenon right now. And you're just definitely seeing a lot less activity. It is picking up slightly with some manufacturers, but for the most part, you're still seeing less activity than you did a couple of years back. And the drop in leasing, is that because when you lease a car, you're basically prearranging to say, I bought this car. At the end of my lease, I can buy it for $40,000. And suddenly what might've been an okay purchase looks like a great purchase because you couldn't buy that car anywhere else for 40,000. Well, leasing has historically been popular because you could get into the same asset with just a lower monthly payment. Obviously, with a lease, you keep it for two to four years. And when you buy a car, it's yours. But again, historically, if you lease a car, you used to be able to get into a Nissan Rogue for $200 a month, as opposed to what you would buy, it would be $350 a month. Well, today, double and triple those numbers, but you get the idea. It's always been a bit cheaper. And that gap has simply narrowed a bit. I think there was a tweet you had that blew my mind of something like the average car payment might have been like $1,000. I forget what the exact stat was, but some huge number relative. And you had also said, look, we can't push these prices any higher. Where are we in the pricing of cars for the average American? And what gives you that sense of we're actually at an inflection point that these prices can't go higher or something's going to break? 
I think the inflection point is number one for the last six to nine months or so, the average price of a used car has not risen. It's just continued declining. Year over year, we're seeing declines. And it's not like supply has rebounded that much. Look, new car supply is up roughly 50 to 70% year over year right now. So you're closer to 2 million units of supply and inventory. You were at about 1 million just over a year ago. So new car supply is rebounding, but it's still millions below where it was before the supply chains got disrupted. Same thing goes for on the use side, where I mentioned earlier that we're still roughly 30% fewer cars in used inventory versus just a year and a half ago. So with all that said, what you're going to start seeing more of is margin compression. Because dealers, they're going to be paying more for cars in certain respects, and they can't pass that on to the consumer. They're also going to be paying more interest to hold on to that car. And the consumer is going to have less favorable terms to finance that car, which impacts the dealer as well in some ways. So all that said, their margin is going to compress because the consumer just cannot eat any more price increases, period. And that's why you're seeing that prices are just consistently going down across new cars and used cars. You're obviously extremely tuned into the market. I can't say I know what's going on unless I'm following you on Twitter, which I recommend people do. But do you think the average consumer is thinking about that in this way, that they've been so trained over the past several years since COVID to think car prices are going up, but they're expensive? Or do you think people are now in a deflationary cycle? Like, I'd rather wait. If I push it out, maybe the car will be a little bit cheaper. No, I think that's just all us weirdos on Twitter that talk about deflation. Half the customers I've met probably don't even know what deflation means. So I would say that 90 plus percent of consumers or 80 plus percent, whatever, they think about what's my monthly payment. That's what they think about. I don't care deflation, interest rates, price. I need to be paying $500 a month. That's what I can pay. So everything backs into that. That's how the consumer shops for a car, for the most part, whether they're bad credit or good credit, it doesn't matter. So I think that's how consumers view the market. And I think it's much less so trying to predict, oh, deflation, prices are going to keep coming down. You do have more educated pockets of consumers that do think like that. But again, good luck trying to time this market. Look, just in the last month, suddenly with all these strikes, dealers went and stocked up on inventory because they thought there's not going to be any inventory and prices rose again. Now, I'm not saying that's going to pass on to the consumer, but I am saying who could have predicted that a couple months back that suddenly prices will actually rise again at the end of August or right around there. So it's just crazy with everything going on. And it's really, really tough to predict what's going to happen next. How does a dealer stock up on inventory? Is that them buying used cars or can they go to the manufacturer and say, I want to take on more risk? So yeah, new and used cars are different because new cars you do buy from the manufacturer. So you put in orders with the manufacturer. But when I say stock up, I'm referring to used. I'm referring to buying more from consumers, buying more from auction, stuff like that. So that got me to the strikes because the thing that I feel like you've had a lot of breaking news, which has been good and impressive, and it's probably an intense time for you and the area you cover. How have the strikes impacted the industry? One of the things that you've been talking about, which has been fascinating to me, is I thought the Ford Lightning, the EV truck was so cool. And that was, I think, one of your first breaking posts. They're not going to deliver it. How are the manufacturers dealing with the strike? And then what is it doing to the industry at large? So this is a super complicated topic. And there's people that are doing this all day, full day. So to give you a high level overview, I can't give you specific details. What I can tell you is that, first of all, what we're seeing is, I want to say it's unprecedented just at the severity and level. The negotiation stories right now with the president of the United Auto Workers and Ford and GM, it's just crazy stories. The UAW, the union is requesting better pay and shorter hours and a bunch of other things. And car manufacturers are making the claims that they've offered 
better pay and whatnot. And that any more than this, they just won't be able to afford. It won't be sustainable. They'll go bankrupt. So again, if you really care about these details, you can just Google it and there's plenty online to read. But here's the bottom line. If you look at the used market first, which is where I come from, in August and early September, you saw dealers were rushing to buy inventory, used car inventory, because they thought, hey, if there's going to be strikes, there's going to be fewer cars in supply, prices of cars are going to go up. Dealers are gamblers in their nature. So since early August, plenty of dealers went and bought, which suddenly after about five or six months of price declines, we suddenly saw the price of used cars start to increase in the auctions, which was very bizarre because it happened on a whim and suddenly no one expected it. Well, I think what surprised dealers is that the impact of the strikes hasn't been felt so quickly just yet. So dealers that stocked up are now cooling down. They're like, wait, I need to relax. Maybe I shouldn't rush to buy so much. So now, real time, recording this podcast, you're seeing prices start to dip again because dealers overstocked. And you're also seeing that conversions at auctions, conversion from pretty much hitting the market clearing price on a used vehicle is also dropping, which again means that prices of cars is too high. They need to come down more. So again, it's super cyclical. Prices go up, fewer buyers, prices go down, more buyers. But the bottom line is that we're still in the early innings of the strike. I want to say the strike started like 32 or 33 days ago. And depending on what happens next, it could get very dangerous. Just the other day, the UAW shut down Ford's largest truck plant in Kentucky, 8,700 employees. They sent them all home just like that on a whim. It's a very, very dangerous situation. And I really have no idea how it's going to play. I've tried to plan out, piece it out, but it's really, really tough to know what's going to be the next move and how it's going to impact the industry at large. Well, I know it's very hard to do, and I'm not looking for the crystal ball stuff. Do the used car guys start looking at that and trying to place their bets? I want to come back to your point that everyone's a gambler at the end of the day. But do you start thinking, you know what I should be doing is I should be at the auction in any F-150 or any pickup truck that comes across the line. I want to start getting ahead of. Oh, 100%. You have that all the time, 100%. It's the nature of the business. Dealers in December will start buying in anticipation of tax refund season in February or March. It's very, very common. You see, the thing is now, because people are trying to move cars quickly and to get turn times down to pay less interest on these cars, you're in a situation where it's tough to plan too far ahead because that inventory carrying cost is very real. But yeah, there's dealers betting and gambling on anything you can imagine. These trucks won't be produced. Prices will rise and anything in between. It happens all the time. So with the strike, you obviously have this shock to the supply side longer than you might expect it. It might go on even longer. So you already had a supply issue. I guess we could be compounding it. But you also have potentially a stressed consumer. So maybe the market is all these other people like the word soft landing that there's some equating like, yeah, rates are high and the consumer can't go anymore, but supply is coming down. So is the general take that although it's shocking, Assuming this isn't going on a year from now, then it's not going to be that disruptive to the used car space? I wouldn't say that. I think that if supply continues to dwindle, for now it's been increasing industry-wide, but now your manufacturer is not producing cars again. If supply dwindles again and the consumer can't eat additional price hikes and lending is at 20-year highs interest rates-wise, I don't see how that doesn't tear apart some dealerships even more. And... I also don't see why bankruptcy isn't a real risk for some car manufacturers. The economics are just not going to make sense for the manufacturer. And maybe they put something in short term to pacify the UAW. I just don't see how they can possibly survive. You're going to be in a situation where these manufacturers, they're going to be coming back asking for a bailout. So I hope we don't get to that point. I don't think we're there or close to it right now. 
but I'm saying it's very realistic. It could absolutely happen if this continues because you're having a real issue right now. The president of the UAW keeps saying he's either the best negotiator in the world or he's an absolute lunatic because some of the stories and anecdotes are crazy that you're hearing about it, but they got to figure it out between all the different parties in the UAW. It's more daytime drama. The auction market, this is my everlasting quest that I love comparing the different markets. Is the auction market an example of base market? Is that the place that you look to? If I was going to say, help me understand how to build up an analysis of where prices are, what's happening, is that the most important place to understand? Yeah, I think the retail market always lags the wholesale market. So the auction market, you really get to see real time what's something worth. It's hundreds of dealers, single lane, virtually or physically, putting an honest number on a car. So I think the auction market is just the best barometer. Retail is tough because retail is delayed. Different consumers have different price sensitivities, and it just takes time for the prices and wholesale to flow to retail. In the bond space, if you wanted to know one thing, someone probably would tell you they'd want to know where the 10-year yield is trading. In crypto, it might be the price of Bitcoin. If I said, give me the one car at auction, that's the most important thing to know. You can only know one car or one vehicle type, which would it be? I'm going to go with like a Toyota Camry. <laughs> Civic, Camry, F-150. Trying to think of the most average car. It's like a Civic, not even F-150, because those sometimes in the South, they buy them like crazy. And sometimes I feel like there's more price dispersion on those. But I feel like your everyday Camry, I would just say your full-size sedan. That's probably the best barometer. What do you think about auctions? But not being car-specific, Mannheim, which is the largest auction in the world, they put out their Mannheim used car index, which is great because that shows you what's happening with prices real time. It's another good option. I had a question about depreciation. Just of my favorite way to buy cars is a car nut would be to buy high-end cars three to four years after they went through this big depreciation curve and you could ride them for a little bit and then sell them to people that just needed to have them and never have mechanical problems. So that was always my hot take on how to buy and sell cars and it worked well for me. One, I'm curious if that's a consistent pattern that these really high-end cars, a couple of years later, that's the steepest depreciation. And then the second thing I have no insight into, but I'm super curious about is the Teslas of these EVs that have these high prices. What do their depreciation curves look like relative to luxury cars? So Tesla, it's really tough to know right now because there's been so much intervention from Tesla, the OEM. They've lowered prices six times or something. So you can't really yet know what's a normal depreciation curve because every time the new car is lower in price, the used car is obviously worth less. So they've come down, I think, 35 plus percent in the last year, which is unreal. It's unprecedented. Some dealers just took baths on these cars because they were holding them. Needless to say, consumers obviously did, whoever owned them. The tough thing about electric cars still is we're still, I would say, at the early to midpoint on knowing what that depreciation curve really should look like. Because an electric car has just some different elements. The battery, for example, that's a huge part of an electric car. It's everything. It's like the engine and it almost has a lifespan on it as opposed to an engine. And so the depreciation curve there is still murky. Whereas on a normal internal combustion car, it's typically 12 to 15% a year. It's really tough to know yet what it's going to be like sustainably on an electric car. But what we've seen in the last just year, it's obviously not going to go on forever with Tesla just dropping prices like crazy. But that's definitely manipulated the market. And for them, it makes it tougher to compete with them because they're going for the jugular. They keep lowering prices, making the cars more attractive. Model X was like $120,000 plus at the peak of the pandemic insanity. 
Nowadays, you can get one for like $80,000. So it's just crazy what's happening with prices on Tesla and how they just continue dropping them in order to be competitive. I was curious. The reason why I was comparing it to luxury is I figured there was this big uncertainty and brand and that on the EV side, people would just be really scared about buying a used Tesla, just the uncertainty ramped up. So I thought the depreciation in the used car price would be devastated, that the new prices stay high and then the used car was even worse. You said it correctly. If you buy a new car, that thing can depreciate tens of percents within three years. And I think certain luxury vehicles can depreciate up to 50% within the first three years or something. So it's pretty crazy. But yeah, if you're looking to optimize for that sweet spot, it's definitely after three years, that's when the car has taken the biggest part of the depreciation hit. And then from there, it's going to be a bit more steady throughout. So we've talked a lot about the industry. I've learned a ton, which has been great. What are you all doing at CDG? What does the brand stand for? You're buying and selling cars, but not to your Twitter followers. So what is it that you're building? No, so I'm all in on this media game. I love this. I never thought that I'd fall into this, but I did. Mission of CDG is to bring transparency to the car market. And we try to do it in a very neutral way, which really just means that we're not looking to polarize dealers or consumers. We're trying to be this trusted, authoritative middleman that just shares with you the true insights on the ground floor, but by people that actually do it day to day. We're not journalists. We're practitioners. And we're telling you what we're seeing. We're analyzing what's happening. And we're really growing that through just multiple media properties. So the fastest growing part of CDG right now is the podcast. It's the fastest growing automotive podcast in the world. That's right from Chartable. We consistently are ranked in like the top three to five shows in America for automotive. And we just try to bring on interesting guests that are in the industry, ask them what they're seeing, talk to us about how they run their business, everything. I mean, down to like how much dollars they have in the bank, how much they make. We talk about the markets, the economy. So it's just having fun with it, not thinking too far out what's the future going to look like, but growing the business. And what's really interesting, I mentioned these to you in the beginning of the podcast, but it's clear that this was lacking in the market. People needed a refreshing, honest place to get insights into the car market. It's a $1.2 trillion industry. And practically everyone buys a car at some point in their life. And even if they don't, they may be in the business in some way. They may know someone in the business. It's an industry that impacts almost every part of the economy. It's such a big part of CPI. All these things that are so important with respect to the economy. And the craziest part of it all is that in the last couple of years, used cars have traded like stocks. Every single day, fluctuations. People thought I was crazy at some point when I kept saying car prices are up, car prices are down. What is this trading like a stock? I'm like, yeah, it's exactly what's happening. So that's what we're doing at CDG sharing that info with the world, trying to distill it down to the simplest way of explaining it to the masses, still keep a level of sophistication so you can truly understand and have an edge in the market and understand what's happening with respect to the car market and the economy. Okay, this has been a lot of fun. So for my closing question on this theme of gambling, if I have $100,000, I give you 100 grand and I say, I want you to buy me the best car for the value, and I also want you to tell me if I put 100 grand in a car, which would be the worst investment I could make or gamble today, where would you place those two bets? Ooh. So <laughs> I think when it comes to value at that price range, I would go for one of two options, either a Porsche, which Porsche dealerships, they hold their value and they increase in value because the Porsche itself, the vehicle is so high in demand and they hold their value. So I think I would go for a Porsche at that price range. If I had to go for not a Porsche, (laughs) 
I'd probably go for some full-size SUV, like an Escalade or something that's super practical. Always has a market for it and super in demand as well. On the flip side, <laughs> that's a tough one. I think some of the crazy drops I've seen in prices have been like Lucid, which is more of like a new up-and-coming brand, you could say, but those things have taken crazy hits on prices. And so it's not your mainstream day-to-day vehicle, but I think I would stay away from that at that price range just because it's a very, very tricky market. And I've seen people take some big hits on those at auctions. Awesome. CDG, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you, brother. This has been awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.